continue our series, our Lenten series, looking at sharing, uh, sharing with Christ and walking with Jesus as we move towards the cross. And what would that have been like if we actually spent those three years with Jesus? How would we have been changed? And we're going to look at snapshots of his ministry as we walk with Jesus. Uh, when I was a young guy, I uh, didn't play an instrument well. I played a couple years uh, in my from like five to seven playing violin. It was pretty pathetic. I think I got the twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's as far as I got with the violin. Uh, and then I started to play the drums when I was in junior high and high school a little bit. And I had the privilege of, of being in a basement watching a guy who was a really good drummer. And I don't know if we have any Rush fans in the room, but there was, he played Tom Sawyer perfectly in front of me. And I watched, I watched over his shoulder watching him play Tom Sawyer. And I was amazed. To this day, I'm still like, think of that. Whenever that song comes on the radio, I think of him playing the drums in the basement. And I asked myself, what does it take to drum like that? I want a drum like that. What would it take for me to be able to play the drums like that? Well, as a young man, there was something that caused me to buy cable. You know what it was? Michael Jordan. You could only watch Michael Jordan all of his games if you got cable. And I watched Michael Jordan play basketball. I went to a couple of games and watched him warm up ahead of time. And I thought, I like basketball. I want to play basketball like Michael Jordan. I'd like to be able to do that turnaround jumper. I'd like to be able to float through the air. I don't care how much I practice. I would never be able to float through the air. My vertical jump was a little bit different than his. But I didn't have the commitment to either drums or basketball to produce what either of those guys were producing. What would it take to be a drummer? What would it take to be a basketball player? What would it take to be an Olympian? What would it take, let's move away from sports, what would it take to be a great father or a great husband or a great friend? How about a worker? What kind of commitment does it take to be really good at your job, to excel, And do we have the drive to do that? Here's something that I'm going to warn you about for this sermon. We are finite. If you pick something, it's going to cost you something else. When you choose to throw yourself into being an Olympian, and you start at age eight, it comes with a cost. You're going to miss out on friendships. You're going to miss out on family. You're going to miss out on vacations, you're going to miss out on lots of life that other people have because you have made the choice to be an Olympian. Jesus is going to say something in this passage, Matthew chapter 8, about following him that at first glance might offend some. It might make you say, really? In fact, if I were to preach a sermon and only preach what Jesus preaches here, you all would think, I'm looking for a new church, probably. This is a hard thing that Jesus says in Matthew 8 about following him, about being committed to following him. The cost of following Jesus. And in this discussion, as we look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
We're going to be asked the question, how do you get there? We'll be asked the question, what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for the mediocre Christian or the part-time Christian or the Christian that gives this much to Christ instead of giving his whole life to Christ? What does that mean? But what I'm convinced is that if we walked with Jesus for those three years, we would have all been pressed to give our whole lives to Christ. To give all for him. So look with me in Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. And the three points that I'm going to pull from this are going to be taken from all of these verses. Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. And what first seems like a hard teaching, I think we'll discover, is a joyful teaching, an exciting teaching. So beginning in verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have air, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Hard teaching? Is that harsh? Is that difficult to hear? Well, let's look at what Jesus was saying and what he meant as we open up this passage. Let's begin with prayer and ask Christ to bless our time together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how at times it leaves us uncomfortable and presses us to a place maybe that we haven't considered. And I pray that we would hear and understand your word this morning and that we would be changed. Thank you for your spirit that gives us the strength and the wisdom and the power to accomplish all that you ask us to do. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Jesus wants real disciples. He is, in his three years of ministry, you would see waves of popularity. Times when Jesus was really popular and people were rushing to him and people wanted to be around him. When he was healing people, when he was feeding the 5,000, you see his popularity rise. And for any of us, we would say, that's successful. Jesus is successfully starting a ministry and starting a movement. Look, 5,000 people are rushing to follow him. And then Jesus teaches something, and his disciples are like, what are you doing? You're crushing the movement. This passage begins with a crowd Jesus saw a crowd in verse 18. He saw a crowd around him. What's going on? Well, he had been healing people. He had been doing things that people were amazed with, that people were following him that wanted the comfort and wanted the credit of what God was doing through Jesus, and they were excited about it, and they wanted to catch with the excitement. They wanted to ride the wave. And Jesus teaches something that's really hard. He knows how fickle crowds are. In John 6, we see him doing the same thing, where he's got a situation where he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, 
and he's going to move back towards Capernaum, and he is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in John 6, and they're all following him, and they follow him around the Sea of Galilee when he travels, and when they get there, he recognizes that they just want food and they want to be impressed. And he gives them a difficult teaching. This, too, is a difficult teaching. The crowd is there following Jesus. Notice that he gives an order. He gave orders to go over to the other side. He talks to his disciples. The expectation is that his disciples will follow his commands. In Luke chapter 6, and verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Speaking to his disciples. Speaking to the ones that are following him. The expectation is that when Jesus gives a command, or he is the one that is leading, that he is going to lead you in the places that he wants you, the places of health, the places of healing, places of comfort, the places of provision. He is the one who will attend to that. But first things first. Call him Lord. He gives an order to his disciples. And in verse 19, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice it's a, it's a scribe. Now in Matthew, as in all of the other Gospels, scribes are looked at as questionable. They are at best questionable. By the end, they are listed among the Pharisees. The, ones, the Pharisees, the scribes, are the ones that turn on Jesus and call for his crucifixion. But in this case, a scribe is calling Jesus teacher and saying that he'll follow him. And there are some to make this more palatable, this teaching, that would say that maybe it's because he's a scribe that he's tough. Well, no, he's not just tough on the scribe, he's tough on his other disciple. He is setting a bar. Why is it important that this is a scribe that he makes this teaching to? Is it because his request is suspect? Well, it might be that his request is suspect, or his declaration is suspect. I will follow you wherever you go. There is a, a bit of possibility that he is saying, I'm going to bestow on you this honor. I will follow you. That could be part of it. But more than likely, what's happening here is the expectation that when you follow another, when a scribe says, I will tag myself with you and I will align myself with you, the expectation is that you will get You'll be popular. I mean, you'll have a position in community where people are going to look up to you. If you aligned with a teacher, then people would come by and say, Rabbi, teacher. And when you were one of the scribes, then you would be included in that honor. And Jesus is just telling him right up front that you're not going to have that honor. You're not going to have that position of power with me. Not the honor that you might be asking for. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That seems like a really good disciple statement. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I will follow you wherever you go, but Jesus says, So you know you're not going to have a place like you imagine. You're not going to have a home base like you imagine. There are some that have read this and thought that Jesus is saying it's wrong to own a home. 
thanks for laughing, because it's not true. It's not true. I, I could list off many passages. Some would say that Jesus actually owned a home. We don't know. <clears throat> but in Matthew 4.13, it talks about him making his home in Capernaum, which means that he was staying with his disciples in his disciples' houses in 9.28 of Matthew and 13.1 and 36 and 17.25. All of these passages allude to him staying in people's homes and living there. So he's not against having people, people having homes. He's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you're not going to... He's not saying that he doesn't have a place that he has a pillow or has a, has a bed. That's not what he's saying again. What's he saying? He's saying it is going to be very unsettling to follow me. I am not promising you a home. And specifically in these years that you're going to be following me, I am going to have all these things taken from me and following me is going to cost you. You have to think about the season that we're in right now that Jesus is talking about. Follow me at your peril. This is a dangerous thing to follow me because the disciples that follow me now are going to lose mostly everything. If they don't lose it before I die, they'll lose it after I die in this great persecution that's going to happen. So he's not, it's not just hyperbole that he's saying that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There is coming a place where I will be denied by my disciples. This is significant as he gives this warning. But yet he says this to him at a time. When, I mean, if you're counseling Jesus, wouldn't it be better to say to him, yeah, come follow me, and as we go, I'll tell you how hard it's going to get. But let's get your feet moving in the right direction first, and we're going to have lots of benefits. Let's talk about heaven. Let's talk about forgiveness of sins, and then we'll get to the hard stuff. Maybe that would have been a better plan. I mean, if you want to start a movement, but he begins by saying, this is not going to be what you think it is. Following me does not promise you wealth and health and happiness. In fact, following me might cost you those things. Do you still want to follow me? Jesus wants real disciples. Real disciples would be willing to sacrifice the security, the stability, and comfort of home for the security and the stability and comfort of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm a guy who owns a home. I'm a guy who raised his kids in a home. And I know the benefit of home. The reality is, which has priority? Is following Jesus more important by far than my very home? Or is my home more important than following Jesus? Jesus is saying that real disciples will be willing to sacrifice the security and the stability and the comfort of home for something else. The security and stability and comfort of the Lord Jesus. Where is their true Stability. Where is their true comfort? I've had the privilege of watching people get older. I've had the privilege of being involved in, in families' stories when the elderly pass away and give their goods to the next generation. And I have often said, 
that is not producing what they imagined it would as families divide and fight over what's left. Security? Comfort? Is that building what we hoped it would be? Is it actually safe? Jesus says, following me does not necessarily mean homelessness, but you cannot put your home above Christ. And that's hard. But do you want to really be his disciple? Walking with Jesus... He would have pressed us to follow Jesus over the comforts of home. Jesus wants real disciples, and real disciples offer their whole hearts to him. Jesus wants real disciples. Jesus wants wholehearted disciples. Look back in verse 18, this crowd around him. One thing you want to know about crowds is that they are fickle. They will follow this for a season, and they're all in. They carry their placards. We've seen a lot of crowds in the last three years carrying banners and believing what they were standing for with their whole hearts. There comes a time when the crowd disperses and did you really believe that with your whole heart? And as people are flooding to Jesus, this interaction is significant as he talks to people about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants wholehearted disciples. Another of the disciples said, verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Is this a difficult teaching? Uh, Many have tried to soften it. Many have tried to make it sound like, well, Jesus couldn't have meant that. And in ways, I'm going to join them and say that it's not what you might first think. But at the same time, it is not my desire to soften this. There was a reason Jesus taught it and taught it with an idea that he was going to surprise us. So let's talk about why it would be surprising. Why would it be surprising that Jesus would teach this? Well, first of all, You look at the Ten Commandments. We are to honor our father and mother. By this, we will have long life. The expectation is that we would honor our father and mother. In 1 Timothy 5.8, we see that if if a Christian doesn't take care of his family and his parents, he's actually worse than an unbeliever. Write that one down, 1 Timothy 5.8. Look at that passage. In John 19, 25 to 29, we see with the few words that are recorded of Jesus, he spends a chunk of them caring for his mom and making sure that his mom is taken care of once he's gone. So this is a surprising statement. It's a shocking statement given what we know about God's heart that we would actually love our family and care for our family and care for those who have provided for us. Well, let's step back a minute and consider the phrase, the Son of Man. In verse 20, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
He's speaking to a scribe and a disciple. They know the Old Testament. What does the Son of Man mean? It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He called himself the Son of Man. And at first glance, we might think, well, that means he was born of a man, right? He was a human. Well, there's more to that title than that. And you would find out in Ezekiel that this spoke to the frailty. The title, the Son of Man, speaks to the frailty of this messianic character that's coming. He's frail. At the same time, if you were to turn to Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you would see that he is the sovereign, glorified Lord, Son of Man. Which one is it? It's both, and that tension, as he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying that I am the frail one who loses all at the end, who is broken, like the shards that are behind us on the stage. I'm the one who will be broken, but I am at the same time the glorified, sovereign God, the Son of Man. The Son of Man in this season on earth has nowhere to lay his head and is preparing a place for us where we will lay our heads eternally. And as he considers this life and death experience that we have now that we are so connected with right now, right now we are so incredibly connected with what's happening in the world and Ukraine and in our nation and who's leading it and how it's going with our 401k and what's going on with the markets and some people are getting up in the middle of the night and checking the markets the son of man came to seek and save the lost the frail glorified sovereign has come into our existence and recognized the times that is so far beyond what we're experiencing right now To understand this statement of Jesus correctly, we need to understand who it is that is saying it and what he's doing. He's changing our eternities. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, in verse 22. Jesus wants wholehearted disciples. Now, knowing the rest of Scripture, knowing that We know that God wants us to care for our families and God wants us to love those who are in our families and God wants to protect them and even so far as the expectation that Christians would do a better job than the world around us of loving our families, this has to do with priority. The picture is of coming to Jesus, our Lord, and saying, what would you have me do? And he sends us back to our families. He sends us back to our world. He sends us back to our work. He sends us back to potentially the drums or basketball or Olympics. He sends us back to our work, but it's under the lordship of Jesus Christ and understanding he is the one who sends. Because we see him in this lifetime, in this, you see him at this time caring for his mom and modeling what it means to be Christian. The issue is priority. And wholeheartedly following Jesus means that he is our first obligation above all else. 
And that means there comes times when we choose Jesus over our kids and we choose Jesus over our wife and we choose Jesus over our husband. We choose Jesus over our parents. And we choose Jesus over our house and we choose Jesus over our work. Again and again and again, we make that choice. But I promise you that Jesus cares more for your family and more for your well-being than you do. And he is providing for you both now and through eternity. And he is looking to provide for your children both now and through eternity. And you can trust him. I am convinced to the core that Jesus has been the one who has made me a better father. And Jesus is the one who makes me a better son. And Jesus is the one who makes me a better worker when I work as under the Lord. So which is, is it my heart for my work or is it my heart for Jesus? My heart is for Jesus in all of those things. I don't go back as a high schooler and say, boy, I want a drum like this guy that I see playing Tom Sawyer. That's not, that's not it. I want a drum for Jesus if I drum at all. And I want to be a family for Jesus if I'm a family at all. And I want to have a church for Jesus if I have a church at all. And that's going to require Jesus being Lord, Jesus being first and following him. And that means you're not Lord. That means you don't get to manage when and where and how that's accomplished. But we trust that it's God's heart for it to be accomplished. Jesus wants real disciples because he loves us. Jesus wants wholehearted disciples because he came and gave everything for us and he's asking us to give everything for him. Walking with Jesus means choosing Jesus as the top priority of our lives. And it's not like, and I've heard it said that you put God, then you put family, then you put work, and friends are in there somewhere fighting with work, but that's the way it gets ordered. No, 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 no. It is follow Jesus and you tell me my priorities day by day. Because the reality is there are some days that work is your top priority and some days being a parent or being a friend is your top priority and some days being home and spending time with Christ is your top priority and you don't know your top priority until Jesus tells you it. Jesus first and everything else following the Spirit. Jesus wants wholehearted disciples because he loves you. Jesus wants his disciples to lead the church. Again, consider what's happening in this conversation. Read it in context as Matthew puts it in this passage. Right before this, he is healing people, healing many. If you were to look in, in Matthew, he's finished his great sermon on the mount and now he goes from healing the faith of a centurion and then healing a bunch of people and now he talks about cost and there's a whole bunch of people that are following him because of these healings saying, wow, look at him. And on the other side of it, he calms a storm. He rebukes the wind. He worries about the peace and the protection and takes responsibility for that with his followers. He's worried about your peace. He's worried about your peace. He's not worried. That's the wrong word. Sorry, that's me. He will take care of your peace. He will take care of your protection. You can trust him. 
He will take care of your family. He will take care of your home. He will provide for you, not in your timing, not according to your plan, according to his plan. Jesus is also heading to the cross. He is going to suffer. He is going to give in that prayer in the garden, not my will but thine be done. He's going to lay aside his desires, his dreams, his hopes, whatever he thought, he's going to lay that all aside because of the lordship of his father and because he loves us. And he went to the cross and died. If we would have seen it, if we would have been there in the garden with him, we wouldn't have such a problem with what he's saying here. We would know that he loves our family. We would know that he loves our dad. There's an urgency and an honesty in this call that I want you to know what you're giving up. I, know, I want you to know what's about to happen. The disciples are going to have to hide away in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to descend. And when the Spirit descends, he is going to blow the doors off of this movement and that he's going to move through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth and people are going to come into the church, but then there's going to be a whole bunch of people that hate the church and there's going to be persecution and a, 10 of the 11 apostles that are left, they're going to sacrifice their lives in pain and the other one is going to be put in prison and sent away to an island. That's what it's going to mean to follow me. You sure you want to do this? There's an urgency in the times, but what about today? I mean, we're coming out of a season in the United States where it's popular to be Christian. It was prominent to be Christian. You actually, if you wanted to be president, you would start by saying, I'm Christian. That's how it used to be. Whether you were Christian or not, you wanted to align yourself as Christian because being Christian, plumber or electrician or carpenter, means that people would give you more work and it would help your business to be Christian. What about today? Do we actually give things up or do we gain things to be Christian? But I hate to break it to you, times are changing. Putting Christian on the side of your business may not be to your benefit anymore. But that really doesn't matter. That's not why you're a Christian, right? Whether it grows your business or not, that's not the point. The point is that you trust Jesus with your whole heart. And whatever his story is for us is sufficient. Joining with him in his suffering. Trusting him. And all the time, he gives us the desires of his heart. The desires of our hearts. He changes the desires of our heart to align with his. Jesus wants his disciples to lead the church. He understands as he's building up in this group of followers of his that they are going to be the ones that are going to start this movement and be able to explain the identity of what it means to be Christian to the people that follow. They'll do that in persecution. They'll do that in, in good times. The reality is, is that he's asking us if we're followers of Jesus to actually be like Christ and lead others to follow Christ. 
That's discipleship. Discipleship is not a five-month program that you go through and learn data. Discipleship can be seen by what it produces. Does it produce love? Does it produce peace? Does it produce joy? Does it produce power? When we are followers of Jesus Christ, our character becomes like Christ and we go back to all of the things that we do with Christ's character by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? That's what we bring. Do you want to know if you are in a right position of discipleship before Christ? Look at your character. Look at what's being produced. Is peace produced? Is joy produced? Is love? And what family doesn't want that from their family member? What church doesn't want that from their church member? If you want to know what it is to flourish in all the arenas of your life, it is to be Christ in those arenas. He will cause us to be faithful, truly faithful, truly loving. He'll change us. That's the promise of following Christ with our whole hearts. I need to take a moment and consider discipleship and Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? Can I be a Christian and not a disciple? What does it take to be a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, it is childlike faith. Being a Christian is just be putting your trust in Jesus Christ and you're saved. You don't have to produce discipleship to be saved. Hang on. Saving faith produces discipleship. When you believe, when, when you believe and it saves you, following is what follows because that's what faith is. If I believe that my car isn't going to crash on the way home and it will get me home safely, I get in my car and I drive my car. When you believe that Jesus is your Savior and you follow him, that means you believe he's your Savior and you follow him. And in following him, he changes us radically, one step at a time. So how do you know that you were saved is that you're becoming more like him and your life is being changed. To make this argument, you have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 over here saying that it's by grace that you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You are saved completely by faith. Then you have James chapter 2 saying that you have faith and I have works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder, but... Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is dead? It's not faith at all. So there are some that have said, they've argued, well, I will get saved and then live however I want. But there is no model for that in the Scriptures. There is no verses to hang your hat on that says, you believe and then never change anything in your life. The model is that you believe and are radically changed as you follow because you believe. Now the reality of my life. The reality of my life is that I struggle with sin and that I'm, I'm still failing and I'm, I'm not complete and this sanctification, this uncomfortable working through my salvation with fear and trembling that's happening right now 
is like take a deep breath. Jesus has you. Jesus will carry us through. It's not by hard work that we are sanctified. It is by the grace of God and by faith in God and and the power of the Holy Spirit that we're sanctified. You can trust him with your sanctification. You can trust him with your discipleship. The question is, are you willing to be discipled? Do you come surrendering your life to Christ? Or do you come surrendering this much to that? Jesus is speaking this morning. You want your family to be untouched by Jesus? You want your home to be untouched by Jesus? You want your work world to be untouched by Jesus? Then you can't be a disciple. It's bringing it all to him. I would love to play the drums. I have a little picture in my mind that when I get to heaven, I'll spend the first 10,000 years working on drumming. And I would be a really good drummer. I got eternity, right? Basketball, I imagine I am going to be able to jump in heaven. Nope, Greg says, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I imagine that I'm going to have a home in heaven. I have no idea what it's going to be like. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would have told you. I imagine it's very different than I imagine. I imagine that in heaven, that all that I do will be in Christ, for Christ, and through Christ, and it will have eternal value. Whether I play drums, or sing, or dance, or build, I think we're going to be doing important things in heaven, but I think it will all be done in Christ. And our great privilege is that God's kingdom has come now and that we can do it now for him. The question is, what do you want to be worth? What do you want to have a value through eternity? Come and bring all to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am uh, fickle like the crowd. I aspire in one moment to follow you with my whole heart and moments later I'm thinking of something else and following something else. Like the dogs following a squirrel, I can be distracted. Father, I pray that you would be patient with us by the power of your spirit, would you change us? Would you call us into a relationship with you that is far more important through Christ than anything else that happens on this earth so that you would be pleased with us and that we would go where you send us? May we be found in your will with you blessing us. In Jesus' name, amen.